You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This show was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another edition of Ocean Currents. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock. On this show, we talk with scientists, educators, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, authors, and more, all uncovering and learning about the mysterious and vital part of our planet, the blue ocean. I bring this show to you monthly from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California, all working to protect unique and biologically diverse ecosystems. Just offshore of the KWMR listening area on the West Marin Coast are the Greater Farallons and Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuaries, which together protect 4,881 square miles of ocean waters. The theme of today's show is neurotoxins. A neurotoxin, by definition, is a substance that inhibits, damages, or destroys tissues of the nervous system. And they seem to be all around us in the ocean and the air. It's February 1st, and while we've enjoyed some tremendous rains on the coast, I've been wondering what's happening with the large-scale harmful algal bloom that has had quite a tremendous impact on the coastal communities up and down the coast from Southern California all the way up to Canada. So in a few minutes, Vera Trainer, an oceanographer from NOAA, will join us to talk about the current state of this large-scale harmful algal bloom. And... Unfortunately, this has prevented the opening of the Dungeness crab fishery in California still to this day. Later on in the show, uh, Bodega Bay community member and fisherman Dick Ogg will call us to talk a little bit about how the Bodega Bay community is coping with that closure. Then later on the second half of our show, we'll focus more on the coast and new findings about what's in the fog. Dr. Weiss Penzias from UC Santa Cruz will join us to share a little bit more of the research he's been finding in his fog studies. So stay tuned for a full show here on Ocean Currents. Stay with us. You're listening to Ocean Currents here on KWMR. And today, on this first half of the show, we're going to get an update from Veer Trainer, an oceanographer with NOAA. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. You're live on KWMR. And I'm really happy to bring you on, Vera, specifically because you you were on KWMR last year talking about this at the beginning of this algal bloom. And from my understanding, it's still going on. And I'm wondering if you could give us an update after all the research you've been doing about where are we at with this harmful algal bloom along the West Coast? Yeah, thanks a lot for the invitation to talk to folks. Uh, when you say the algal bloom is still going on, its effects are still being felt. But live toxic cells, a large bloom is not present offshore right now. We have folks on a research vessel, the research vessel Shimada, um, as part of a winter hake survey who are sampling some of the phytoplankton offshore and looking to see what is present. They've seen very low numbers of the cells that caused the big algal bloom last spring, um, but such low numbers that we're really not concerned. However, what has happened is this big bloom that was present in the spring and summer last year, it has sunk into the bottom waters, into the sediment. You have 
organisms like crabs, sand crabs, dungeness crab, even rock crab that are potentially feeding on organisms that are found in the sediments. And they are uh, basically continuing to accumulate these toxins or some organisms like Dungeness crab that have high levels of toxin in their viscera, they just haven't got, gotten rid of these toxins from this bloom that occurred last year. How long does it take for a system to somewhat flush of this toxin produced by the plankton? I understand it's not live necessarily or abundant in the surface waters, but it t- continues on on the seafloor. How long does it take for a system to flush it out? Or does it? <laughs> well, let, let me talk about the organisms. So, the, so razor clams and dungeness crab, and I believe some rock crab in California, are still containing, in some places, high enough levels of toxin to keep those fishery closed. Uh, Twin Harbors off the Washington coast is just lurking right around the regulatory level. Razor clams are sort of going above and below. So the fishery, the razor clam harvest is closed at Twin Harbors right now, and it's the only location in the coast. I believe Trinidad, that area at the border of California and and Oregon, is still closed for some of the crab fisheries. So those organisms are retaining these toxins for, what is it now, at least six months months, six to eight months from a bloom that occurred last spring. Um, As far as how long these toxins reside in the sediment, um, you know, they are there, but they are, I would say, concentrated right after the bloom happens. So the major effects are going to happen right after the bloom uh, starts decaying. You know, after that time, you are going to get some mixing. You're going to get some stirring up of the sediments. You know, winter waves and and winds are going to start, you know, really mixing things up. So our hope is that some of these effects are going to dissipate pretty quickly. Um, so unless we have a new bloom, which, you know, we have El Nino coming, we anticipate we're going to see something. We don't know how big it's going to be. But if we don't have a new bloom, we think that these effects are going to continue to decrease, toxin levels are going to continue to decrease, and all of these fisheries are going to be able to open soon. Well, that's really good news to hear. I wanted to ask, you know, it sounds like some of the monitoring is done by shipboard opportunities like the Shimada that's out at sea. Is there other other ways to monitor uh, plankton blooms like this or or at least toxic blooms? Yes. Uh, So, you know, as far as what happens well offshore, really the ships are the best way to identify what's there. Sometimes we can use satellite images, but as you know, we sometimes have fog or cloud, and that really hinders what we can see by satellite. We have a number of programs that look for these toxic cells in waters up against the beach every single week. I know the California Department of Public Health has a a monitoring program like that. We have a couple of programs in Washington, one called the ORHAB program, Olympic Region Harmful Algal Bloom Program, and the other Sound Toxins, which is localized in Puget Sound. And we have folks looking in their microscopes every single week. And there are also some rapid methods for assessing 
whether the plankton that are seen are highly toxic or not. And some of these monitoring programs are starting to incorporate those. I'm anticipating we're going to be seeing more of these monitoring programs continue year-round as one of the predictions with a warming ocean is to have potentially more harmful algal blooms. Yeah, it's they're, I have to say they're really fantastic. Some Some of the programs have paid participants, but others, for example, the sound toxins program in Puget Sound, it's just, it's folks who are really interested in being better in touch with their coastal waters, understanding what is there. So we have private citizens, we have environmental learning centers, we have shellfish growers and tribes all participating in this program. A microscope is provided and folks learn how to do the analysis, to do the microscopy, to, to identify these organisms. And for us scientists, we can't be at every place all the time. This is an invaluable way for us to have eyes on the shorelines to see what is there. And it really enhances our research capabilities as well. That's fantastic. More data is better, as long as you have the ability to handle it all. Right. Um, In terms of adaptation, I know one of NOAA's big missions is to help coastal communities adapt with the changing conditions that we're having. What are some different types of mitigation ideas in regards to dealing with these harmful algal blooms? They obviously have really large consequences for specifically coastal communities, but economically as well. What are some different uh, ideas that are being thought about in terms of how to how to continue to live and earn money when the, we have these large blooms that shut down fisheries? Yeah, I, I can't give all the answers, but I can give one example. And I think more knowledge means greater security. So I mentioned this ORHAB project in coastal Washington back when domoic acid became a problem in 1991 to our coast. The state managers would just close the beaches if there was any sign in any increase in toxicity in shellfish. Now, because we have this plankton monitoring, they have greater security. They know what is happening at many of the beaches along the coast. So they are able to selectively close those beaches that have a problem while opening others. So when you make a plan to go razor clamming, you're there's a pretty good likelihood that you're going to be able to go clamming at at least one of the beaches, whereas in the past, there would be these emergency closures coastwide. So it's our hope that that can be a model for how we live and adapt with these increasing harmful algal bloom events. The more we know, the more the the, the greater the potential for these selective closures of only certain fisheries that are affected. Now, I can understand with clams and, and other shellfish, they don't move, so they're right. in the ground. But what about for crab that are moving around? And I know that's affected how they've considered opening the fishery mm-hmm. along the state of California, but how, does that, how do you think that might affect that? Well, we know, for example, this year that there were several hot spots in California, um, Santa, Santa, uh, Santa Barbara area, Santa Cruz, and then up at the California-Oregon border. I think 
by understanding what's happening at these hot spots, there's greater confidence in opening the crab fishery in those areas. You know, you're right that crab do move, but there's somewhat of a limited range in which they move in a certain period of time. So I think that you can, managers can state with confidence that crabs in this particular area are going to be okay. And the greater warning that they can give to the fishers, the greater the potential that the that the fishers will go to those areas where they are safe. Excellent. So hopefully there'll be some some new adaptations of how we can open fisheries in the future. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, back to the species that we're talking about. This is one specific species of phytoplankton, I understand. Um, Pseudonychia, correct? Well, that's a genus, and there are over 20 species of Pseudonychia, some of which are very highly toxic and some much less toxic. And unfortunately, the bloom in 2015 was, was primarily composed of very healthy cells of Pseudonychia australis, which is one of our most toxic species. Okay. Now, one thing I've read with um, warming conditions, like one thing we've seen up here is tropical species of plankton showing up here. Is this a a widely dispersed species? I mean, up and down all around the ocean, is it one thing that could potentially be displaced? Or how does that react? How does that happen? Yeah, that's a really good question, and we're actually looking at that carefully. Um, Pseudonychia australis, especially in the spring, we think is more of a southern species. But because we had enhanced northward transport, including you know some unusual zooplankton species and fish species going as far north as Gulf of Alaska, we think that those conditions, as well as the anomalously warm water, brought sort of these more invasive species further north. So Pseudonychia australis is not typically seen in high numbers off our coastline, let's say Washington, British Columbia, early in the spring. And we think that it was an anomaly last year. Uh, whether we'll see more of this, we just don't know. I think the potential is there. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we're almost considering that this cell was sort of an invasive species last spring. Wow. It's amazing, the microscopic that has so much punch for uh, really affecting everybody on the West Coast here. So that's really interesting. You know, in just a minute or two, I'm going to bring on Dick Ogg, a fisherman out in Bodega Bay, to talk a little bit about what's been happening out in Bodega. But could you just share, are there any online resources that folks could go to to learn more about harmful algal blooms and how NOAA is studying them? Well, we have a web page. Uh, We're at the Northwest Fisheries Science Center, so nwfsc.noaa.gov forward slash HAB. Also, the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution has a really fantastic website on harmful algal blooms. And then uh, California, there are various programs in California. So if you would Google California and harmful algal bloom, I'm sure you'd find a lot. Great. Well, thank you so much, Vera, for the update. And I really appreciate the continued monitoring that you've been doing up there with throughout the, the three states here. And we'll hopefully we'll see some changes in the next few weeks with the fisheries. Yeah, you're very welcome. All right. Take care, Vera. 
That was Vera Trainer with NOAA Northwest Fisheries Science Center, and she just gave us a little update about the harmful algal bloom that we've been experiencing on the West Coast here. And I want to bring on Dick Ogg, who is a fisherman in Bodega Bay. His boat, the Karen Jean, is at the Spud Point Marina, and he's been a fishing community representative on the Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary Sanctuary Advisory Council. So, Dick, thank you for calling Ocean Currents. You're live on the air. Okay. Thank you, Jennifer. I really appreciate the opportunity. So thank you so much for calling and being so involved in communicating between the Bodega Bay community and everybody else about this, the impact of this closure. Um, Dungeness crab is a huge, important economic um, piece of the pie here in California, but I know specifically for small fishing communities like Bodega Bay, how is the Bodega Bay community coping with the lack of a season this year? Well, quite honestly, um, with a less than stellar salmon season and no crab to speak of at this point, um, our, you know, the fishing community in general has been uh, a desperate situation. Um, you know, our bills continue to, to add up and, uh, we haven't had any income for quite a few months, and you know it's 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 put us in a very very awkward spot. Um, fortunately, right at the moment, uh, January opened up an opportunity for us to get a little bit of money from another fishery, uh, which is Black Cod, and uh, we're trying to. A number of us are trying to utilize that to kind of hold ourselves together here for a while. Right, right now we're we're trying to utilize uh, uh, a fish called sablefish or black cod. Uh, it's known on the probably on the common market as butterfish, and uh, you know that's that's not there's not a large amount that we can get. Um, we're limited by quotas, but the guys are trying their best to make it work with the little amount that they're allowed. Uh, you know, so I mean that's. That's part of what is happening. You know, the captains, we tend to be able to uh, weather this a little bit better. It, the, 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 pe- the people I was most concerned about were the, the crew members, the guys that really keep us afloat, the guys that do all the work. And, you know, I mean, those guys have no source of income. You know, they rely on us every year for uh, you know, providing them with a, you know, source of income and with the lack of salmon and all, um, you know, this crab season we were hoping was going to be fairly, you know, fairly good. And uh, unfortunately, as it's turned out, you know, there's been no income for the guys at all. You know, and they, many of them, like they can't quit their jobs to be able to come over and put a couple of months in to put gear together and get ready to go to work. And all of a sudden now we have, we don't have any income. You know, it's difficult at best. Have there been any local relief efforts set up to help folks in terms of any um, funding, fundraising drives or food drives? Are there ways that listeners could potentially help um, relieve some of the, the effort, the effects that have been felt by folks that are not making any money? Absolutely. And um, thank you for asking. The, the, there's a food bank that Lori Kavanaugh uh, put together 
uh, between her and, uh, and the Chamber of Commerce out here, the president of, uh, of the Chamber of Commerce, Patty Ginocchio. They both put together a food bank at the marina that, you know, anyone can bring by food and, and leave it at the, um, uh, it's, it's in the laundry room, actually. At the Spud Point Marina? Yes, at the Spud Point Marina. They can leave the food there. It's distributed to the to the the deckhands. We also have a um, a freezer for frozen product, and we're we're you know we're trying to get donations for the frozen products too, so that we can you know give the the guys some extra food and so on and so forth. It, and it's been absolutely fantastic. The community support has been just. Just incredible, absolutely incredible. I mean, I I can't say enough um, about the the community support that we've had. Um, in addition to that, the county has stepped up, and and uh, Carol Hart, Jim Nantel, uh Shane Lewis have all put together a uh, foundation that is a five hundred one three C three that you can donate to directly. And that is a that's a one to one. If you give a dollar, a dollar gets to the deckhands. And Carol Hart came up with the idea of offering hundred dollar gift cards to the deckhands, and we've done that now two times, and we're looking at doing it again. And so if if we can, if we get you know there's, that's another way to support the the crews and the people out here too. Is that through the Sonoma County Regional Parks Foundation that you're yes, talking ma'am. about? Yes, ma'am. And do you, you, you want the uh, website? Well, I think if people Google Sonoma County Regional Parks Foundation, the foundation, mm-hmm. they could probably get to it where they could get information. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay, good and, to know. Okay, they can also call uh, Pam McBride at uh, 565-1355. And she can she can also help uh, you know with credit cards and so on and so forth. Is that area code seven zero seven? Yes, ma'am. Seven zero seven five six five one three five five, and that's to take credit card donations. You were saying? Yes, it is. That's okay. correct. You know. So I understand that uh, a bipartisan group of legislators actually requested California Governor Jerry Brown to declare a fishery disaster due to the the impact of the closure. And what does this do for communities like Bodega Bay that are really impacted by this? Well, right now we're just hoping that this it's moved up and and you know uh, Governor Brown signs the declaration. Uh, as far as you know, from that point on, I'm not exactly sure how the funds are distributed or if they're going to, where they're going to get them from and so on and so forth. But we do need to have that done. That's very important. Um, uh, I mean, I don't know how there's any way that we can recover, you know, what we've already lost, you know, financially. Um, even if they do open the season now, uh, it, it's, it's just going to be very, very difficult for everybody. So I'm hoping that Governor Brown follows through on this, and and it, you know, there's, there's, you know, there's a lot of hope from all of us that everything's going to work out. Crab season usually goes till June for commercial. Yes. Do I have that right? Yes. 
Jubilee, so yes. if it did open up, there'd still be a couple months to maybe recoup some funds. For... Well, that's true. That's true. It would be, there would be one of the problems is the the crabs go into their mating feed. Mm. And when they do that, they number one they don't they don't eat, and number two, right shortly after that, they begin to molt. And when the crabs turn soft, there's no more their their meat goes away, and and they become just basically water, and their shells harden up, and then they begin to eat again, and everything kind of cycles through, and and that usually takes three to five to six weeks, and. Uh, that puts you sometime into the latter part of April before you can actually start to fish again. Oh, so okay. This this could be very, very detrimental. The other the other thing is, is that all the the product is not necessarily sought after after sometime around April because um most of the crab fees are done. Uh, no Christmas, no New New Year's, no Super Bowls, no, you know, it's just People start to look into salmon, you know, or other products, you know. So it's it's, it's a very difficult thing for us right now, and um, we're still doing the testing. You know, I'm I'm included in that. I do I help uh, help do the testing for the state, and uh, we've still got product that we. I mean, we still have crabs that are above the uh, action level, and so we're just. We're continuing to test and hoping for the best. And as soon as things clear up, we're hoping we'll be able to fish. Great. Dick, thank you so much for the update. Um, We're just about the half hour here. Are there any last things you'd want to share with the audience about what's happening out there? Well, uh, one thing I would like the audience to know is that um, uh, the the fishermen are opening a community fishing association uh, 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 we have a hoist to offer a, a new a, a fresh product from the boats at Mason's Marina. We are in the process of putting this all together, and um, we're hoping that we can provide the, the community with a sustainable, fresh product uh, from the local fishermen here directly across the, the dock at, at Mason's Marina. So that's a that's a new and upcoming opportunity for the community in this area. Wonderful. Well, thanks for sharing that. Community Fishing Association at Mason's Marina. And um, you'll keep me posted so I could share that, I hope, as uh, it comes along. Yes, ma'am. Thank you so much. Fantastic. Well, Dick, good luck. And thank you so much for sharing what's happening out there. And we'll keep our fingers crossed that um, there can be some relief for the, the group out there, as well as up and down the entire California West Coast for a lot of folks impacted. So thank you again for calling in today to Ocean Currents. Okay, Jennifer. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Dick Ogg, a fisherman out in Bodega Bay, talking a little bit about the impacts that the closure of Dungeness Crab Fishery has had for the community. And this is all caused by that harmful algal bloom that has the toxic um, plankton that's making it very unsafe for consuming Dungeness crab. And he mentioned a couple different ways if folks want to help the community that really relies on this income. Uh, Sonoma County Regional Parks Foundation has an account to help 
um, deck hands and whatnot and would have gift cards and, and they're accepting cash donations and it goes one to one to the fishermen. And you can look at Sonoma County Regional Parks Foundation um, online. You can also call directly 707-565-1355, a phone number, and they'll accept credit card donations to help. And there's also a food bank at uh, Spud Point Marina, all the way down there out, out at Bodega Bay. So if you happen to be going out there, bring some food to help share. Uh, it's pretty tough. This is an important fishery for for the community, and it's been a really tough thing for everybody. So let's hope for the best that things can turn around really quickly. We're going to take a break here. It's KWMR Point Reyes Station, and in a few minutes we'll come back and talk about fog and what is in fog. We are about to learn a little bit more than I knew about until recently about what's in fog. You're tuned to Ocean Currents. Stay with us. This is Ocean Currents. My name is Jennifer Stock, and we're going to switch gears to another topic, but still related to neurotoxins. On the West Coast, the cool Pacific Ocean waters meet warm air masses and make fog. And fog rolls off the ocean. It brings cooling air across the Bay Area and other coastal communities up and down the entire West Coast. And a huge percentage of our country's food comes from this region. I'll also add wine as well because of this fog. But do we know what's in the fog besides water moisture? Well, today my guest, Dr. Peter Weiss Penzias, an environmental toxicologist from UC Santa Cruz, is going to help enlighten us based on some studies that he's been doing. So I'd like to welcome Peter. You're live on KWMR. Hi, it's nice to be with you. Thanks for calling in today. Sure. Fog, this is such a big part of our lives here. And I don't know if many people have thought too much about what's in fog besides moisture, but certainly you have been. Um, why did you initiate studying fog? Um, yeah, it is, you're right. It's something that, that's all around us if we live on the coast. And a lot of people have personal experiences with it. And, um, and if you look in the literature, there's, uh, there hasn't been a whole lot of chemical characterizations of, uh, you know, actually what's in the fog. But my reason for studying it was, was pretty specific, and that was um, in the, the complicated cycling of mercury, which is a neurotoxin that, was, you know, we'll talk about. Um, there was this hypothesis that mercury in the ocean... Um, which is just floating around as inorganic mercury, um, can become methylated by these bacteria uh, that live deeper in the ocean or in the sediments where there isn't any oxygen. And this methylmercury can incorporate into the food web uh, of the ocean. And that's, that's well known and builds up in, in the higher trophic level fish like tuna and so forth. But a certain form of this methylated mercury, which is called dimethylmercury, uh, is produced, and it is actually volatile. Um, there's not a lot of information on dimethylmercury because it's incredibly toxic and it is volatile. So, like, there's maybe only, you know, two or three laboratories in the whole world that even work with dimethylmercury because it's just, it's just super toxic and and. You need to have like a fume hood within a fume hood within a ventilated room, even to you know, even to work with it. 
So a lot of basic chemical information is just not very well known about it, and it's also produced in very low concentrations in the ocean. But it was thought that along the coast, especially in California and other places where you have upwelling, it brings the deeper water to the surface, can even bring uh, sediments to the surface, that there could be dimethylmercury brought along with that deeper water up to the surface where it would then evade to the atmosphere. And so if that were occurring, then this dimethylmercury would be rapidly taken up by a cloud droplet and uh, it could accumulate into the fog. So that was the, the idea that I wanted to test, and it turned out that nobody had ever really measured um, methylated mercury in fog water before. Interesting. So did you find dimethylmercury? Well, we don't actually test for dimethylmercury, but we test for its breakdown product, which is monomethylmercury. So that, that to the two methyls on a mercury is just one methyl too much, apparently, um, and it rapidly degrades, especially at the acidic pH of cloud water. And, um, and then monomethylmercury can be stable for, you know, on the order of a couple of days, um, but it is also pretty reactive. Um, and, uh, but it, it does find its way into the, into the cloud water. I'm assuming any sort of mercury getting into the food web is not a good thing. We know that mercury is toxic specifically for pregnant women. They're really warned to be careful of mercury ingestion through seafood. Mm-hmm. Are we talking about the same type of mercury here that is potentially in the fog? Yeah, absolutely. And the reason that it was of you know primary concern to learn about this is because in rainwater which is, you know, there's been lots of measurements of mercury in rainwater. In fact, there's a mercury deposition network, um, which is almost 100 sites across the U.S. and Canada where they collect weekly measurements of rainwater and they test the amount of mercury in it. They're looking for total mercury, which is dominated by inorganic forms. And, and these forms are important. They, they get into the ecosystem and they find their way into fish and so forth. But what we were suspecting in the fog was actually the methylmercury. And methylmercury needs to be formed in anoxic environments. So there isn't typically very much methylmercury, um, say, you know, in plants or, or in soil or, or just on the surface of things because we live in an oxygenated environment, and so you wouldn't have these bacteria that form methylmercury. So the possibility that it could be raining out of the sky in, you know, enhanced concentrations relative to what was seen in rain, which is very, very low and practically negligible, um, was, uh, you know, seriously interesting to us. And with the presence of fog, it's almost like a a constant, it's a a constant effect, it seems, along the coast. There's fog a good portion of the year, even if it's in lower concentrations, it still has water moisture there. Yeah, it's true. And that's been part of this study as well, is to try to quantify the amount of water that the fog delivers to the terrestrial ecosystem because there's scant data on that as well. So I want to I want to have two questions about the I want to come back to the plants in a second, but I wanted to go back to where is the mercury coming from? You talked about right. upwelling of the ocean. Mm-hmm. 
as mercury a naturally occurring it's a naturally occurring element but is yeah. the source really the ocean or i was assuming this is from pollution from right. burning of fossil fuels yeah well it's like a, a multi uh hop uh mechanism uh mercury indeed is a naturally occurring element and um all of the mercury that was on planet Earth when it was formed is still here with us. So, so we, we haven't made mercury like, you know, alchemists or anything like that, but what we're doing is increasing the rate of its cycling, and we're digging up the sequestered mercury just like we do with carbon and putting it into the atmosphere. Um, so you're right that the, we can trace back the source of this mercury likely to atmospheric emissions, but there are other sources, so we we can't say for certain. Um, mercury was used extensively in gold mining, especially in California, um, but a lot of that mercury is bound in sediments. Um, it's not really going anywhere. Um, once it makes it out of the San Francisco Bay, it's pretty firmly attached in a mineralized state, and so it's it's getting buried with ocean sediments. The likely source of the mercury that's ending up in the fog comes from emissions to the atmosphere. And right now it's estimated that about three-quarters of atmospheric emissions are uh, from anthropogenic sources, and about one-quarter is just purely natural. Um, but our activities can influence the natural sources as well, like those coming from soils or maybe biomass burning. These are natural processes, but when we have land disturbances or we cause climate change and more biomass burning, then that releases more mercury into the atmosphere. As far as the industrial sources go, the, the, the two main sources are combustion of coal in coal-fired power plants and in uh, small-scale gold mining operations, which are primarily located in the tropical countries like Peru, Indonesia, and Mm -hmm. Central Africa, but they they still use a lot of mercury for their gold extraction processes. And, okay. Um, yeah, so it makes it into the atmosphere. It's fairly inert in the atmosphere, slowly oxidizes and rains out and gets into the ocean um, in sort of a molecule-by-molecule molecule sort of way. And then once in the ocean, it undergoes another cycle involving the bacteria that methylate it and some of that evades back to the atmosphere. Some of it gets incorporated into the biota. And, um, you know, it's eventually, hopefully, it's going to attach to a sinking particle and go down into the sediments and become buried. That's what, the way it leaves the system. That's fascinating to talk about that whole cycle of mercury. We typically yeah. are thinking of carbon cycling through that. I mm -hmm. didn't really know about the mercury and the whole... Yeah, it's a lot less comp concentrated, but every element cycles, and mercury is very analogous to carbon... Um, because it has a presence in the atmosphere, has a fairly long lifetime. Um, it oxidizes, and um, yeah, and it's also taken up by plants directly. So that's what I wanted to ask. So it gets, we have fog along the coast. We got a lot of plants, mm -hmm. fog deposits on the plants, and you were talking about anoxic environments. Is yep. anoxic without oxygen? Yep. So. If it's landing on the plants, there's obviously oxygen, but you're saying when it sinks into the soil, then it becomes anoxic. But can the plants take it up and be... Yes, uh, it's, we don't know that much about it. We know redwood needles take up fog water, 
Um, some other plants do take up fog water through their leaves, and if there's methylmercury in the fog water, then that would go directly into the plant. Um, the water can drip off of the needles and go into the soil, and those, that can be taken up by the plants as well. And then plants also take up mercury that's in the gas phase uh, just straight out of the air as well. But then they'll sometimes release it back. So that's sort of a two-way flux. Interesting. So all of it's very low level, but is yep. there concern about bioaccumulation over time? And yep. addition to all the other things that we're bioaccumulating, it's mm-hmm. like one more little stressor. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Yes, there is some concern. We're working um, with some wildlife biologists right now and um, just uh, quantifying the amounts of mercury in the tissue of terrestrial species. Um, we've been looking at, at plants, redwoods, uh, various other plant species along the coast and inland from some Sierra Nevada sites. And we're looking at deer fur um, and uh, puma fur and whiskers. Interesting. And the fur is a convenient sample to measure for mercury because uh, mercury binds tightly to proteins and to sulfur-containing proteins, and uh, we have an abundance of those in our hair. So that is one way in which mammals get rid of mercury in their bodies is through the hair. If you want to get your mercury levels checked, you can just give a hair sample. Mm Mm-hmm. And that tends to show you your accumulation of mercury over a long period of time. Um, If you want to look at acute poisoning, then you would test one's blood. But for for an animal like a puma, um, the the fur is a very good way to see their uh, accumulation over time. And what we've found so far, and this research is is ongoing, but we presented a poster on this at the American Geophysical Union Conference in San Francisco just last month or in December, and um, we found higher concentrations of mercury in coastal pumas and coastal deer uh, compared to their inland counterparts. So that would probably translate to people that live here on the coast, and if they ate food locally grown here as well, they may have higher levels of mercury too? It's possible. I I don't know if I can go that far. Um, I think with humans, that would be really, really hard to show um, because we eat food from from all over. Right. There's so many other sources. Yeah, and and pumas are really specific. Like 95% of their diet is deer. So they're like, what's for dinner tonight, deer? Again. <laughs> well, I know some people rely on tuna as their food, and yeah. tuna's got a lot of mercury. That's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's for dinner, tuna? Yeah. <laughs> well, what are, you, what are you thinking for next steps of this study in terms of what do you want to know more about? Well, there's a lot of gaps in our understanding just of the basic chemistry and transport of this methylated mercury from the ocean to the fog and deposition onto land. So there's a lot of details, um, you know, is it, is it happening in particles, what, is, what are the reaction rates, um, and we've been collecting fog at different locations and looking at the amount of methylmercury, and what we found, and, and this, is, this will be in a paper that, that should be coming out next month uh, in the journal Elementa, was that among all of our sites, there was uh, highest levels of methylmercury right along the coast and then it decreased as 
one goes inland. And our most inland site was 40 kilometers from the coast, but they still received a lot of fog. It was up uh, near Santa Rosa. Wow. And so this kind of behavior, and, and then plus we also collected fog over the ocean, like offshore, like 40 kilometers offshore, and that had very low concentrations of methylmercury. So we're seeing highest right along the coast, decreasing inland and decreasing offshore. Um, so we're trying to come up with a mechanism that can explain all that. We, we're thinking it could have something to do with the nearshore environment, like wave breaking. Um, but, you know, we just we need more measurements, and we might try to collect uh, fog droplets from a different platform, like possibly a... Uh, a um, yeah, yeah, a drone. Put a little fog collector on a drone, fly it through a cloud right above the uh, ocean surface and uh, collect the droplets. Neat. Is there a website where people can learn more about the study and sure. the fog collection sites that you have? Yeah. Our, our website is fognet.ucsc.edu. Fognet.ucsc.edu. I know people were really interested in fognets earlier in the year when we were talking about drought. Yeah. And um, I used to work on Catalina Island, and they, they experimented with <clears throat> excuse me fognets out there to collect moisture, or at least they were, pl- they were playing with the idea of it. But it's interesting. It's also a tool for collecting fog to study. So fognet.ucsc.edu. Yes, and it is a, it's a blog, so um, anyone can sign up on the site, and they can post uh, if, if they have information about fog, um, you know, whether it's scientific or just observational, you know, because we live in this coastal environment. And um, w- one thing that, we're, that we've learned is that fog is fickle. <laughs> it's very difficult to collect it. Uh, sometimes it's foggy. 100 feet up and not at the surface. Um, sometimes it's foggy at the surface and not up. Um, it's very hard to predict fog events, and um, the chemistry of it seems um, uh, hard to explain at this point. And right now we're, we're also interested in looking for other toxins in the fog um, that could be you know, moving from, let's say, ag fields um, mm. or industrial areas. Wow. Right now I'm collecting fog in Merced, so we're trying to get some Thule fog samples. And uh, we'll use that as a control, sort of the non-marine environment, to see what the the methylmercury levels are. We expect them to be very low because it's the non-marine environment, but um, we'll we'll find out. Well, thank you, Peter. It's really interesting to hear about the study of fog and a great place for people to learn more about these studies, too, fognet.ucsc.edu, and great. has human health implications. So we appreciate that research. Thank you. Okay. Um, no problem. I wanted to go out with a song that you wrote and sang. You have a whole other persona as the yeah. singing scientist. That's right. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about how you got into um, these great songs, by the way. I'm listening oh, to them, and my you. son is going to love them. I can't wait to play with them with him. But That's how'd you get into the music? Well, um, just as a kid, was you know played a lot, and in school was in bands. And um, when I was in graduate school, I sort of led this dual life. I was in a in a rock band in Seattle, where I was at, in graduate school at University of Washington. And you know, we'd be out playing clubs at night, and then I'd be in the lab in the day. And and the two worlds never seemed to come together. <laughs> and then I started raising kids, and um, you know. 
writing kids songs and and just wanted to have more of a message uh, just to educate people about the environment and um, inspire them. And, you know, I just thought, well, through music is a great way to do it. And uh, just started becoming a singing scientist and, you know, playing shows and made a CD. And so, uh, yeah, I'll be playing on March 4th at the UC Santa Cruz Arboretum. No, actually March 6th, sorry, for their Hummingbird Days. Uh, but yeah, my website there is singingscientist.com, and you can check it out, listen to my music, and I really appreciate you spreading the word. Excellent. Well, we're going to go out with uh, Do As You Otter, and thanks again, Peter, for coming out yes, on Ocean sir. Currents today. Okay, my pleasure. Take care. Bye. Don't pollute the sea. Bags of plastic are so fantastic for carrying your groceries home from the store. But on a windy day, the bag can blow away, and then it's just garbage litter in the shore. Do as you order, don't pollute the water. Do as you order, don't pollute the sea. Bag in the water floats near the otter, sticks to his whiskers and to his jaws. Yeah! An otter doesn't need a piece of phony seaweed, but as he swims away, it sticks to his paws. Do as you otter, don't pollute the water. Do as you otter, don't pollute the sea. I love it. Do as you otter and don't pollute the sea. A singing scientist. Very cool. Peter Weiss Penzias uh, talking about fog earlier and also about his music. Do as you otter. Peter Weiss and the Earth Rangers. You've been tuning in here to Ocean Currents. Thanks for tuning in. Ocean Currents is the first Monday of every month, and it's part of the West Marin Matters series, where every Monday at 1 you can tune into KWMR to learn about a topic of environmental focus. Ocean Currents has a podcast. You can go to iTunes or cordellbank.noaa.gov to get past episodes. And I love hearing from listeners. If you have any ideas for topics or questions or comments, please email me, cordellbank at noaa, N-O-A-A dot G-O-V. Thanks again for tuning in here to KWMR. This has been Ocean Currents. And I'm going to leave you with a little bit more of Peter Weiss and the Earth Rangers. Have a great afternoon. Around a plastic bag that's floating by Looking for their main dish, a succulent jellyfish So one of them swoops down and gives it a try Do as you order Don't pollute the water Do as you order Don't pollute the sea
Thank you for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marine Community Radio KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To contact the show's host, Jennifer Stock, email me at jennifer.stock at noaa.gov. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov. Thanks to bensound.com for royalty-free music for the Ocean Currents podcast. For more info, visit www.bensound.com.